To be an Olympic athlete takes an incredible amount of dedication, talent, and mental ability. My guest on this episode has faced off against some of the best Olympic sprinters on the track. We'll talk about what it took to earn Olympic medals, how he works with up-and-coming Olympic hopefuls, and how he's been able to translate that success into the broadcast booth. Next, on Sports in the Making. Thank you once again for joining me on Sports in the Making, a podcast where we find out what people in the sports and broadcasting industry do, how they've made an impact in the sports world, and how it all comes together. I'm your host, Don Cardona, and this is episode number 16. My guest on this episode is a track and field broadcast analyst for NBC Olympics, NBC Sports, and the Olympic Channel. He's been nominated for Emmys as an announcer, he's a sprint coach helping elite athletes generate faster speeds, and he's a four-time Olympic medalist in the 100 and 200-meter events on the track. His name is Otto Bolden, and we met while working at NBC Sports on track and field events. He's very active in international sport, is an aviation pilot, and he has seen and done a lot during his athletic and broadcasting career. We'll talk about his background, how he got into the industry, and how Olympic athletes need to focus on their mental state during the COVID-19 lockdown. We'll also talk about how he helps athletes improve their speed performance and how he's progressed as a broadcaster. This is my conversation with my friend and colleague, Otto Bolden. I'm with four-time Olympic medalist, world champion sprinter, NBC Olympic track and field analyst, sprinting coach, collegiate Hall of Famer, pilot, and an overall fun person, Otto Bolden. (laughs) In the short time that we have together, Otto, I'm hoping to cover most of everything that I've listed, but I know that's probably not going to be possible. But thank you for being with me. Pleasure to be with you. All right, Otto, I want to talk about a lot of your accomplishments and what you continue to do in athletics and broadcasting. But first, let's talk about the Olympics getting delayed to 2021. Was that the right move now that we've had about a little more than a month to reflect on it? Not only was it the right move, I think it was the only move because... When you started to see countries like Canada and Australia pull out and say, you know what, no matter if you have the Olympics or not, we are not subjecting our athletes to what could possibly be waiting in Tokyo, Japan. Um, It was the only move that the IOC could make. And uh, if anything, I think the moves that, you know, countries like Australia and Canada made sort of forced their hand earlier than they had wanted to. How will that affect the 2020 slash 2021 Olympics for the athletes? Well, for the athletes, I think, um, you know, I've, I've read, I follow enough of them and I've read enough where all of them just kind of said, okay, so the work that I've done since the fall is all pretty much going to go away. Right. Um, I've seen athletes talking about being a little bit more lax with their diets, um, maybe going back to almost a, a hybrid of, of fall, fall and spring training. But I think the biggest adjustment is the mental because everybody was laser focused on being ready for something that, you know, I mean, of course, everybody had to get ready for the Olympic trials. Everybody's Olympic trials, um, just about everybody's was going to be in June. So it's to me, it's more the mental side of it where everybody had to just say, okay, so right. we're just going to detune a little bit, relax a little bit, because obviously this very important thing that I was getting ready for this summer is not going to happen this summer. It'll be next summer instead. So I think the limbo is the hardest thing for a lot of these a lot of these athletes because Olympic athletes only know one speed and that is crank it. And right now 
they can't really crank it because, you know, they're not trying to be in the best shape of their lives in September. So I think that's been the hardest part for all of them. You know, when you say that, it reminds me of a vinyl record where it spins and spins and you're in this routine and then suddenly it's scratched and now you have to adjust. How difficult, in your experience, if you've ever experienced you know, anything remotely similar, you know, where you've had to break training or do something different, how difficult is it to keep that mindset? I have to admit that that is not something I ever had to deal with. And I find myself trying to sympathize um, from an athlete's person, you know, from an athlete's perspective with these, um, with this current crop and think to myself, wow, what was I ever getting ready for? And then, it didn't happen, or I couldn't go. And I, I guess my closest thing is when I was injured for the for the world championships, and I, but that's not an appropriate analogy because that went on without me. Mm-hmm. For these athletes, it's it's never going to happen. So again, I I don't know that that anybody alive has any sort of frame of reference that they can use to say, oh well, I know what that's like. It's like the time when I. You know, when I right. had to go through it, uh, it's a very unique situation. If you're working with athletes now, how would you get them through this next year? Uh, you know, knowing that this was it, it was August this year, and, and now you have to, as a coach, prepare them for the delayed uh, competition. Well, as I said before, I am a lot more concerned about the mental side of this. Uh, and when I say that, I mean, the physical thing, the physical side of it, you can deal with. In other words, okay, so a lot of people, let's just face it, they're going to just shut it down for the year or for most of the year. I see a lot of very optimistic people saying that, you know, we'll have certainly a track and field season or there'll be sports that'll be starting up towards the end of the summer, towards the beginning of the fall. I am not so sure that we are going to be a sporting planet by the fall. Uh, and, yeah. and I know that people who are fans of college basketball, uh, of, of college football, are like, what? But I'm a numbers guy. I, you know, I, I make so much of my living now analyzing numbers as a coach and as a television analyst. And I'm telling you, if you look at where we are, if this was a 12-round fight with this coronavirus, certainly in the, in the United States, I think we're in about round two or three. So I don't understand how that's going to happen. Yeah. Having said that, it's the physical part is the easier one to overcome. Yeah, so you shut it down for most of the year, and then maybe you start back up a little earlier to get ready for 2021. Although, if you paid attention to some of the headlines this week, even the Tokyo 2020 organizers are now saying, we don't know what to do if, by chance, 2021 presents a similar situation where people are not yet ready and this virus is still out there. And that, to me, is even scarier. But to answer your question, the part that I'm worried about is athletes now who will have spent an entire year not being in peak physical condition. That, to me, is the bigger bigger situation where I'm looking at my athlete and saying, okay, so she didn't have a complete 2019 and she only had an indoor season in 2020, and then she's going to be asked to ramp it up for 2021. That, to me, is a tougher task, and I think it's not being said, but a lot of coaches are thinking that's the real challenge, to not have an entire 2020 season of being in peak physical shape, of rattling off personal best, and then being asked to you know, to have an Olympic year in 2021, because that, 
would be unprecedented. And you're referring to Brianna Williams, of course. So we'll talk a little bit about her uh, in a bit. Do you foresee, and I know no one has a crystal ball, but could the Olympics go back on that you know, same year for summer and winter Olympics at this point? No, I think the IOC has some real incentive in having an Olympics every two years. If the winter and summer are on the same schedule, then you only have an Olympics every four. Right. And I think in this era of, you know, Olympic sports have to really, really fight with, you know, everything from mixed martial arts to poker and a lot of things that they didn't have to compete with 30, 40 years ago. I don't see any chance that the IOC takes their two crown jewels and sticks them in the same year because then you sort of only get one shot every four years as opposed to every 28 to 29 months saying, hey, it's the Olympic year, it's the Olympic year, winter and summer, winter and summer. Fair enough. All right, athletically for you, you were kind of competitive, as I'm sure many people know. <laughs> as as water's kind of wet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm just going to read off some of your early accomplishments, and correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but you were the national okay. championship in the 100-meter and the 200-meter at UCLA yep. while setting a couple of records in both. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, yeah. <laughs> now, but you still have the 100-meter record standings still, correct? I still have the UCLA records, those NCAA records. My 100-meter record lasted from 96 until about 2009, I think. And then uh-huh. Christian Coleman came and just blew everybody away with the 982, which is what the current NCAA 100-meter record is. Then you were, uh, and I'm not going to read all of these because there's, there's a plenty of them, 1997 world champion in the 200. Olympic medalist four times, one silver, three bronze. Correct. Okay, well, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. So how did you get into sprinting? <laughs> Not in a typical fashion because my athletic gifts came very late. I probably didn't start to even feel like I was fast until about 15. I had done a little bit of sprinting back home in Trinidad before I left for New York in 88 at age 14. But I don't think anybody who saw me run as a young team would say, oh, yeah, he's going to be our country's first world under-20 champion and our country's first world champion and a four-time Olympic medalist. So I was actually playing soccer in Jamaica, Queen for Jamaica High School and was discovered by the track coach there, Joe Trupiano, who saw me kind of leaving people behind on the soccer field and going down the wing and said, oh, you have to come start in my track team. And at the time, I was... I think I think back to that sixteen-year-old kid and thought, "Oh, you know, what a cocky little sob!" Because <laughs> when he approached me, I was kind of like, uh, "Did you see what I'm doing to people on the on the soccer field?" And he said, "Yeah, but how would you like to be responsible for the entire outcome of of, of the event?" Interesting. Went, yeah, that immediately that that was the right thing to say because that sort of like flipped the switch in me where I went, "Ooh, okay." Yeah, and that was it. That was literally it. That was the, the fall of 1990. And how, how was your first few months or weeks of training for that? Did you think that you'd ever have a chance at, at, at accomplishing everything that you've done? I don't think I went in there thinking, oh, you know, Olympics in two years, which is exactly what happened, or, you know, world beater in, in 24 months, which is 
which is what happened. I went in there thinking there are a lot of Caribbean kids on the team from Jamaica and Trinidad and, and some of the other islands. And, and, it, and it, this is a good, uh, it's a good time to be around people who, um, who are sort of like-minded and no, I, I think if anything, the things that he was subjecting me to, were I a different type of person or a different type of athlete, I'd have quit a long time ago because my first race for him was an indoor 800. You take a sprinter and tell him he's got to run an 800. <laughs> most of them will, will quit. But what he did is he framed it such that he said, you know, hey, you know, I mean, of course, I get on the team and a lot of the other guys were like, oh, gosh, this guy from Trinidad. And he talks a lot and he thinks he's all that. And the coach came to me and said, you know, these guys don't think you're as good as you think you are. I think otherwise, and I'm going to prove it to them by putting you on the four by eight. And I went, huh? He says, yeah, yeah, yeah. If you can run the four by eight and you're tough enough to run that, you can run anything. So, yeah, my very first race was a four by eight. I think I split like 206 indoors, not knowing what I was doing, just kind of hanging with the pack. Uh -huh. And, um, you know, the rest, as they say, was history. Okay, so with that, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice and training and, and determination and the athletic ability to get to the top of, of your game. Is there a, another ingredient that you think takes a person to that Olympic elite level? Yeah, Olympic athletes have to be a little crazy. And, and, and I don't use that word lightly. I mean it in, in the literal sense. The esteemed coach Brooks Johnson, multiple-time Olympic coach for the USA, said, these guys have to be a little nuts because what you subject your body to, to stand on the top of a podium, maybe, and maybe win this little small disc that we call a medal, maybe, to, to ordinary civilians, that doesn't compute. You know, Jerry Seinfeld has a phenomenal old routine where he talks about the sacrifices that Olympic athletes have to go through. You know, this, you know, I've, I've been doing push-ups since I was a fetus. I never had a drink. I never went to a party. And then, you know, I, I flew halfway around the world. The gun went off. Oh, silver medal. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, yeah. and, and that's for a lot of, and, and that's for the ones who are lucky enough to get a medal or good enough to get a medal. What about all the athletes that do all that training and will never see anywhere near an Olympic podium? So, yeah, you have to have a little bit of, of crazy focus in you. I don't know that that's, that's a bad thing for a young man who, you know, is growing up in New York and, you know, certainly in, in that era in, in Jamaica, Queens, there are a lot of other things that I could have been into. So if I was going to be obsessed about being the best soccer player I could be and being the best sprinter that I could be, uh, I look back and I go, that's a good thing, not a bad thing. What about swagger or confidence? Uh, you know, having gotten to know you a little over the last few years, <laughs> I, I, I know that you are you're a fun person to be around, but you, I, can, I can also feel that you do have that, that confidence. And, and, and watching some of your past races, which I did in preparation for this podcast too, you've got that swagger and confidence. How does that factor into uh, an Olympic athlete's performance? What's funny is that I think people who have known me my whole life go, Oh, it's a good thing that you discovered you could sprint because your natural confidence sort of fits that profession. Other people who maybe only knew me from my sprinting days think, well, you know, all sprinters are cocky and, and, and that's why <laughs> um and that's why and that's why you ended up there. So um for me, you know, I, I had a conversation with uh, a childhood friend of mine, somebody who knew me, you know, from the ages of like ten to thirteen. And, and of course, knows me now. And he reminded me that when I was leaving Trinidad 
and they were like, wow, you're really going to leave? Like, you're really leaving, uh, you know, you go to high school very early in the Caribbean. You go to high school from, like, age 10 or 11. And he said, yeah, when you were leaving Trinidad, you told us, you know, it's it's only going to, it's going to be a very short period of time, and then you guys are going to hear my name somewhere because I'm going to the United States, and whatever it is that I'm going to do, I'm going to do it to the level where you're going to, basically, you're going to hear my name back home. And I thought to myself, why would I have said that? <laughs> like, like, what in my 14-year-old brain, sort of scared and leaving Trinidad, you know, at, at, at age 14, would I have said, oh, yeah, you're going to, you know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be hearing about me soon. But I guess that's, that's just the level of confidence that, that I was raised with, that I, that I have always had. And um, yeah, it's gotten me into trouble, but it's also, I, I think, done, done more good than harm in my life. So I, I don't look back and go, Ugh. you know, I look back and go, you know, that's sort of a tool that I needed to survive. Well, you just mentioned, you know, you kind of grew up with that, but was it learned or do you think you just had that natural sense of having assurance about yourself? Um, a little bit of both. My mother, my mother was very instrumental in, in, in raising a young, confident man. I got sent to the best schools. I had, I, I, I was, I was raised in a world where there was nothing that I could not do, whether it was my parents putting me on a plane when I was five, six years old by myself and saying, yeah, go to visit your family in Montreal or go visit your family in San Jose, California. I was never, I was never shown any limits. So of course I was raised to think that I could do anything and yeah. I would, I would be able to be anything. And I think it's, it's a big, it's that, that upbringing has played a big role in how I have sort of nurtured my own athletes as a coach. If you really convince them that they are capable of anything, look out because they're going to be very, they're going to buy, if they buy into that, right. they are going to be very, very scary because when you, when you, take away limits, then you start tapping into, um, you know, real potential. Yeah, well, that gives me the perfect transition to talk about your Olympic career. I mentioned before, you won a few medals, silver in the 100 and a bronze in the 200 at the 2000 Sydney Games. And then at the 96 Atlantic Games, you won bronze in the 100 and 200 competing for Trinidad and Tobago. Where are you Tobago. from? Tobago. They'll, yes. they'll kill me if you say Tobago. <laughs> I'll fix that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, so what's the most memorable event you've ever competed in? Um, I think of those four medal races, it would have to be the um, the Michael Johnson gold medal race in Atlanta in 1996. In both of those races, I was a college senior. I'm pretty sure I was the youngest in the hundred in '96. I think I was the second youngest in the 200. Um, I say the Michael race is the most memorable because even people who've never heard of me you know if you tell them uh hey you remember the race with michael johnson with the gold shoes they go oh yeah man, that i remember and they say yeah, yeah i was third in that race and then they go oh okay <laughs> so <laughs> um i i think for the i think for the planet that's the the race of the of the four of my of my medals which they are most likely to remember it was a world record it was michael johnson's gold shoes on american soil and um of all my medals, I think that's the race in which I had the most fun, despite the fact that I was completely blown out of the water by one of the most amazing Olympic performances ever. 
Yeah. Was that was it a little intimidating being in that race as young as you were? Not at all, because um, I had already kind of messed up the hundred. The hundred, as you recall, had a lot of false starts. Linford Christie was the defending champion at the time. He was thrown out. I was thrown out for a highly questionable false start and then um, ended up completely throwing away the, the race towards the end. I, was, I, I got the bronze. When I stepped in line in that 200 in Atlanta in 96, I'm not in there thinking, oh my gosh, I'm young. Oh my gosh, I'm a, I'm a university uh, senior. I'm in there thinking, I have absolutely nothing to lose and yeah. three people aren't going to beat me. So, and I was in there with Michael Johnson and Frankie Fredericks, who would get gold and silver, and who are easily two of the best 200-meter runners of all time. I think with Michael, you would say that only, only Bolt in history was better than him. And with Frankie, you'd probably say that only Bolt and, uh, and Michael Johnson were, you know, and, and probably no allows by the time it's all said and done, were better than Frankie. So I really went in there like, you guys got to beat me tonight because I have nothing to lose. And <laughs> I know I'm getting another medal and I'm, just, you know, I'm going to make you guys work for it. So they, no, that was probably the least pressure in terms of, you know, when they call on your marks, I am probably under the, I probably have the most fun in that race because I knew it was going to be a good race. How about the 100 at the 2000 Sydney Games? The Sydney, I, you know, my memories of Sydney are not as fond. And I, I, I say that even though Sydney, I think, was the best Olympic host of all the Olympics I've been to, both as a broadcaster and as an athlete. They, I mean, the Aussies are just phenomenal as hosts. They love sport, maybe even more than Americans. But for me, I had got, I'd been injured in 99, um, the only real serious injury of my career, uh, a pretty serious hamstring strain. I was coming back, I was having a comeback here in 2000, not running the way I was prior because I had had that, that year of, of, of uncertainty and injury. And then Sydney was cold. I have a picture somewhere in my house of the photo finish of the 100 in Sydney. And I think the temperature um, that evening was, you know, 68, 67 degrees. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, for somebody from North America, that's, you know, that's not a big deal for y'all. I'm from Trinidad, <laughs> <laughs> the, the most southerly isle of the tropical Caribbean yeah. where, you know, we live at about, you know, 80, 90 degrees on a daily basis. So it was, it was not fun. It was not fun going through the rounds in that, in that sort of temperature. And uh, I never felt like I had a real chance to win. Maurice Green at the time was so dominant and I was not at, you know, sort of full strength. So I always feel like I got lucky to get the silver in, uh, in Sydney because it's the kind of race where I could easily have been fourth or fifth given oh, wow. what I had gone through. The, oh yeah. Given what I had been through the year before. And then the bronze in the 200 was, that's actually the medal I tell people I am, uh, I value the most because after the hundred in Sydney, I called my family together and I said, I'm pulling out because I am not leaving the stadium on a stretcher. Wow. I don't feel like this. Uh, I don't feel like this hamstring is going to last another four, another four rounds um, in this 200. And it was either my mother or my ex-wife or a combination of the two that said, really? So you're going to tell the story for the rest of your life that you pulled out of an Olympic race that you were almost certainly going to get a medal in. That's motivation. And I think when they, yeah, I think <laughs> when they phrased it that way, I went, whoa, yeah, you're right. Because I can leave here with my silver and sit in the stands and watch somebody else win a medal 
in the 200 that, that I should probably have. And I went in there and barely got the bronze. But it's the it's the medal that I'm probably most proud of because it was like, man, it would have been so much easier to just say, you know what, I'm out. Three Olympic medals ain't bad. That's a great story because, you know, people get in those situations where they want to give up. And, and if they don't, great things can come if they just continue to push. Are you able to translate that story when you're coaching or, or when you're talking to young people? Yeah, uh, maybe once or twice, maybe one or 200 times I've used that. <laughs> <laughs> I've used that story as an example of, look, when it's all on the line, you have two choices. You can either, you know, run or you can fight. And I've never seen anybody that went into the fight, whether they got first, whether they got last, whether, you know, whatever happened, the act of having gone out there and fought will teach you so much more going forward in your life than having sat in the stands or having said, you know what, man, I'm, I'm tapping out. So for me, I've been able to use that example and say, you know what, it's always better to go in there and fight because I can't imagine having to live with having to tell you this story yeah. <laughs> um, 20 years later and say, yeah, you know, um, I had won a silver in the, in the hundred. And then, you know, I just really thought it was safer to, you know, just, you know, just protect my leg. And, you know, I, I withdrew from the 200 and uh, four years after that, you know, I had, you know, I was in a car crash and, I never really got a chance to perform on the Olympic stage again. So, you know, I ended up just kind of, you know, having three Olympic medals instead of four. So I, I just feel like I would never have been able, that would have bugged me for the rest of my life. Yeah. All right. Before we talk about your broadcasting career, I've heard you're a pilot. <laughs> yeah. How did that come about for you? Well, it, it sort of goes back to what I told you about, you know, my upbringing. I was... I was always surrounded by, I thought, people who were just doing amazing things. And my uncle's kind of a renaissance man. You know, he left the Caribbean with not a whole lot, a whole lot of, of resources, came here, you know, busted his butt, put himself through vet school, became a very successful vet. And, you know, he was living the life. So, mm -hmm. you know, I grew up around him um, and with him being a mentor for me with a bunch of sports cars in his garage and he had his own plane. So for me, I, I don't know a life where one of my favorite uncles doesn't have his own private plane. So I, I was introduced to general aviation at a very young age. And in fact, in my family, it's kind of a joke that it took me till, you know, my thirties to get my pilot license <laughs> because, the, because the truth is, I probably wanted to do it when I was 15, but track sort of took me on a different path. And, you know, I never really had the time and I was busy getting, I mean, I was in my first Olympics at 18, the year after I left high school. So I don't know what it's like to not, <laughs> to not have, to not have a plane to go fly. So I, I got into aviation through him just wanting to, to do everything that he did kind of. I'm a big advocate for, for general aviation. Anybody that, that, you know, that hits me up on social media and says, hey, I, I see you have your pilot license. Like I say, stop talking about it, buy the books, go do it. I don't know. I know friends who literally got their pilot's license and never flew, but nobody ever gets their pilot's license and regrets doing it. So just go ahead and do it. It's, 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 a, it's a pretty cool thing to have done, to yeah. have learned. It sounds like fun. Do you still fly and, and where do you fly to? 
I do still fly, but only because one of my good friends is a guy called Barrington Irving, who is sort of an aviation pioneer, the youngest guy to fly solo around the world. He did it about 10 years ago, 10, 15 years ago. So he has he has a, a foundation that teaches young kids through aviation. And uh, he has a couple planes and I get to fly with him. But I am way too busy to fly as much as I want. But I'm grateful to have him around because he'll call me up and say, hey, I'm going to Orlando or I'm going to Jacksonville or Tallahassee. And, you know, why don't you come fly right seat? What kinds of planes do you fly? Oh, only the only the small ones. <laughs> he has a, well, it's, it's Cessna now, but it was Columbia when he, uh, when the company was, was founded. And he has now, he has an old, a big old noisy twin uh, that's a lot faster, uh, Mitsubishi. But uh, yeah, just just the small ones, not not the jets just yet. <laughs> <laughs> so now let's talk about your broadcasting career, and that's where we came to know each other while I was producing track and field for NBC Sports and the Olympic Channel. And right. you came into Denver to call track and field for Diamond League competition series. You've been an announcer for a while with the BBC, CBS, ESPN, and NBC. How did you get into broadcasting? That year that I was telling you about, um, 1999, when I was injured. I missed the world championships and um, I wanted to stay in Los Angeles and feel sorry for myself because I was, for the first time I was going to miss a major world or Olympics with an injury uh-huh. and which meant that <laughs> Maurice Green would have very little resistance to winning the 100 and the 200 at the Seville world championships, which he would go on to do. Um, as I said, I wanted to stay in LA drive my Porsche and feel sorry for myself because woe was me. I wasn't going to be able to compete at the world championships. And um, my manager, Emmanuel Hudson, says, nope, you're going to get on a plane and you're going to come to Seville too and we'll find something for you to do. And man, he and I fought and fought and fought. <laughs> and, and the example that he gave me is, he said, you know how we go to the fights in Vegas and everybody, every boxer you know is at the fight? That's how this has to be. Like, it's the world championships. Everybody in the sport is going to be there. You're a world champion. How are you not going to be there? You're going to be at home while everybody else is the world? And I went, yeah, he's probably right. <laughs> so I got on a plane, went to Seville, and I was there just kind of stalking and, you know, like, oh, God, I got to sit in the stands and, you know, watch this meet go off without me. And then the BBC discovered that I was there and called him up and said, you know, we would like for, um, for Otto to join us in the studio. And, you know, I said yes. And I had a really good time just kind of sitting in, giving my prognostications, giving my sort of inside information on, on Maurice winning that double at the World Championships. And it kind of, the bug kind of bit me there. Huh. And more importantly, the BBC viewers seemed to like me. And then by the next year, the BBC hired me to cover the U.S. Olympic trials for them. Because, of course, as you know, being from Trinidad, I, I was always at the U.S. Olympic trials with my clubmates to see them perform. But obviously, I wouldn't be that busy. So the BBC is really the first, um, the first entity that, that dared to put me on, uh, on the air. But they are the ones that, uh, on whose ear the bug bit me for the first time. That's really interesting because... It- you know, just hearing you talk over the last 30 minutes or so that we've been talking, an Olympic athlete has this sense of self-being that they know that they're capable of doing something great, but somebody else is always in your corner trying to push you to be your best. And that sounds like what happened here. 
Um, yeah. In a sense. I mean, not yes, necessarily it, putting you in the broadcast chair, but getting you out there to make sure that you're not sitting on your hands. Oh, absolutely. And, and I reluctantly give him credit for it um, all the <laughs> reluctantly. time. <laughs> Reluct- yeah, reluctantly, because um, the, the truth is that if I don't make that trip to Seville, yeah, maybe I end up in broadcasting eventually, but maybe it doesn't happen the year after I retired. I retired in 2004. Uh-huh. By 2005, I was doing the NCAA championships for CBS, and by 2007, I was on NBC. I've been on NBC now since 2007. So, yeah, it, it, it was a question of somebody seeing things from maybe a little higher up or maybe having a different perspective and, um, and getting in the way. I always say, entertainers, actors, and athletes, you always need to have somebody to keep them out of their own way mm-hmm. because <laughs> I can't tell you, um, I used to be married to a, a record executive, and I can't tell you how many artists complained about performing or even recording the song that eventually made them a worldwide sensation. Yeah. (laughs) Right? And in the same way, an athlete sometimes has to be convinced to take up an event or to even go to an event that, you know, or take on a challenge in some cases that, you know, made them a household name. So, um, I was grateful that I had somebody to sort of, you know, g- you know, get me out of my own my own stupidity. So your broadcasting career pretty much took off right away. Then so much to the point where you've been nominated for Emmys, which is kind of a big honor. How did you develop as a broadcaster, and how did you know you were doing well? I don't know that anybody. I mean, who who, who among us is any good at anything that we start, you know, very very early in it. Um, I don't know how I look back at, at what at what I was doing in 2007. I was I was okay. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I, I was making subject and verb agree <laughs> on air, and, and and that's and that's good. But it, it wasn't anything earth shattering. But I think what I had is I had people around me who saw ability in me and guided me. To me, that's what you need when you're a young anything, if you have the talent. You, t- you need somebody to say, look, I know you're capable. Here's what I think you should do. And um, being around Craig Silver at CBS early on was a big help because Craig Silver has a ton of experience and he taught me things that I use to this day. Being around Sam Flood um, at NBC, that was a big help because he was, you know, he's somebody who has a ton of experience and was able to tell me, nope, um, I know you can talk all day, but there's certain times in broadcasting mm-hmm. where less is more, just shut up and let the moment play. One of the other things that Sam told me that I never forgot is stop trying to be the broadcast version of yourself. I can't stress enough how important that is for a young broadcaster. Stop tr- because you and I can have this conversation now. And you asked me, so Otto, what do you think of Christian Coleman's chances to win the Tokyo Olympic gold? And I say, you know what? I think it's a long shot that anybody beats Christian because what I've seen from him for the last three years indicates that, you know, he's really going to be a force to be reckoned with. And then I take that same thought that I gave you just now in casual conversation. And because it's on TV, I try to dress it up or frame it differently, or make right. it sound more highbrow. The truth is, 
what good broadcasting is just to say it exactly the way that I told it to you right there. It's the way how when you go to acting class, they teach you the best acting just sounds like a conversation between yourself and the other actor that you're interacting with. And that's something that a lot of young broadcasters take a while to figure out. I was lucky, but I think I figured that out early because I had people teaching it to me the right way. And when we worked, you know, obviously you're a seasoned veteran coming into the booth and me not having as much experience with track and field, it was a pleasure to hear you speak about this with that opinion that is strong enough to be to, to stand on its own, but not delicate enough in certain situations where you have to sugarcoat things, because I think that's where a lot of analysts might get into trouble is they don't have that confidence that they can criticize properly. How do you feel about that? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's a very important point because, <laughs> and it's something that I refuse to budge on because I have heard people say, you know, he can be very harsh on the air and he criticizes and he's a hater and this and that and the other. And, you know, for example, this week, this week we're in, we're in the Olympic week on NBCSN and, you know, they're re-showing the Olympics from Rio and from Beijing right. and from London 2012. And I've, you know, occasionally I look at, you know, a race that's six, seven, eight years old. And what I see on there is the way I've always broadcasted, and that is, I am going to say it as long as it's, one, my valid opinion, and two, as long as it is within the framework of the event. In other words, you are not going to hear from me, so-and-so in lane one has a really good chance to win if I don't think it. If that comes across as, oh, I'm hating on the person in lane one or the person in lane eight, then that's another story. But I am always going to be honest in my assessment. And one of the, one of the people who reinforced that with me, to me, was Charles Barkley, who is somebody who I've always looked at. And there are elements of how he broadcasts that I like. I don't necessarily love all of it. And he doesn't do my specific job because he is a studio analyst as opposed to somebody who has to call the the action live, but I've always felt like what makes Charles so fun on television and, and the rest of that whole, um, that whole crew on, on TNT is their honesty. They don't sugarcoat. And the, I think the, the beauty in that is people at home already know what you're saying. And some of them may agree with it. In other words, if somebody screws up or something is not ideal, they're at home thinking it anyway. So if yeah. you try to, if you try to downplay it or dress it up as the broadcaster, you lose your authenticity. So I've never shied away from that. And I think having producers like Craig Silver and having producers like Sam Flood in the early going who said, hey, if that's what your assessment of the situation is, you've been there. We have you on our air because you know what it's like to be there. Convey that to the viewer. You know, with athletes too, though, I mean, I've run across a few that are really sensitive to the things that are being said about them. But if you're not critical of them when it's warranted, you could lose a lot of respect from other athletes who, you know, who won't call it like they see it. And, and then they're in, you know, they lose credibility. Would you agree with that as well? Absolutely. And that's why I say, I say that, you know, I am, I am proud of the criticism that I get because there are some American fans who say, you are very pro-Caribbean. The hmm. Caribbean fans say, you are very pro 
USA. And then back in Trinidad, those fans say, hey, you know, we'd like to see you um, maybe be a little bit more complimentary towards <laughs> the, the athletes from Trinidad and Tobago. And I go, look at that. That's the yeah. literal definition of being impartial. Everybody thinks you're for the other side. Yeah. So I have, I have, no, I have absolutely no problems with, with people who say that because I know that at the end of the day, they are the fans. And I look back at some of my old work, as I said, and I see myself being, you know, effusive with praise for Allison Felix or Sean Emilio Weibo or Usain Bolt or Shelly Ann Fraser-Price. And I'm like, you're watching somebody who is gushing, you know, about the accomplishments of right. those athletes. Where's the prejudice exactly? <laughs> Where's the prejudice? Because it's not for any one country. It's not for any one region. The truth is that I have always prided myself on staying um, staying true to the outcome and the result. I will, I will give you your praise when you do well, and I will, and I will be very honest in my criticism if I feel like that could have been better. I'm talking with Otto Bolden, four-time Olympic medalist, track and field analyst for NBC Olympics, sprint coach, and just an overall good guy. Otto, how do you prepare for the events that you cover? Do you have a methodology or a routine that you do? Yeah, I think I think I think everybody has their their own sort of um, method. Uh, with me, I am sort of I get ridiculed at NBC because at NBC I sit down next to some of the most organized broadcasters ever, and I know that people um, I know that that's a thing in the in the Fox booth, for example, with Aikman and Joe Buck because Joe Buck is very very structured. And my fellow UCLA Bruin Troy Aikman is the exact opposite. I'm not very structured, but you better believe that when I show up to Tokyo, there is nothing, I shouldn't say nothing, there's very little that's going to happen in Tokyo that I am not already prepared for. Sure. So because I, because I have been pretty successful at figuring out at, at, at sort of my handicapping, I get ready for all possible outcomes. Now, having said that, in 2008, my first Olympics, I was completely overwhelmed and I, I over-prepared. You, but you over-prepared? Also, oh, there's no question because my first year on the air for NBC was 2007 and then they say, okay, you're going to do your first Olympics in 2008. And to me, oh my gosh, it's the Olympics and this is so important and this is so big. I have to just I have to do, I have to know every possible thing and I have to prepare for everything. Now, it probably bailed me out. When I say bailed me out, I had such little experience to call in Olympic Games that because I was so overprepared, I got some good moments in Beijing because of that overpreparedness. I'll give you an example. When Usain Bolt wins that 100 and he, you know, he wins by, he wins by a big margin. And the line that I have at the end is the 100 meters is running a straight line, but Usain Bolt has just turned the corner. I, I wasn't good enough in 2008 to create that line on the fly or in that moment. Mm-hmm. I had prepared that line two months earlier in my office in California. <laughs> so I think, I think because I, I knew, look, Bolt is going to blow away the rest of the field. In the 200, for example, I had already done the math and I had come to the booth and said, and told my producer, if he doesn't clown around at the end, 
that world record is gone because everybody else, including Michael Johnson, feels like, oh, no, he's not going to get the record yet. And I'm just, and I said, he just ran 969 playing around in the hundreds. Mm-hmm. What do you think he's going to run? And I did the math, and I said he's going to run 99 on that turn, and he's going to come home in about 1930, 1931. Well, he ended up running 1930. So I was already ready with a world record call. So I overprepared in 2008 because I was intimidated by the moment. Since then, I think what I've done is I have done sort of a combination of, yes, get ready for the moment, but also what does this mean historically? What does this mean? What does this accomplishment mean? Yes, they won the gold medal, but Allison Felix winning this gold medal, well, she's now won more than any other track and field athlete in history. Last year in Doha, for example, when Shelly Ann Fraser-Price crosses that line uh, in the hundred, I go, you know, let's stop, let's stop pretending that Shelly Ann Fraser-Price is not the greatest 100-meter sprinter of all time on the women's side. She mm-hmm. now has four world titles in the, in the hundred. Nobody, nobody's close. And yeah. now she has two golds and a bronze in three Olympics. And, of course, my fellow Bruins said, how could you say that? Flojo, Flojo. And I said, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. I said, I knew Flojo. We all love her. God rest her soul. But Flojo has one Olympic gold medal in the 100 and no world titles. I said, that's not I said, you guys would never use, you guys would never make that comparison if it was, you know, an NBA comparison or an NFL comparison. So let's just, let's just be honest. So yeah, I, my methods are, are very unorthodox, but you better believe that when I show up to something big that I have, um, I have spent a lot of time doing my homework, just not, not just on the surface, but also really trying to get to know what these athletes are likely to do on the big stage. Well, speaking of big events, you were on NASCAR for a bit. How did that come about? <laughs> um, I was on NASCAR because I think NBC was looking for something more to, to give to me. And um, I love cars. I've always loved cars. I think it was so left field to kind of stick the track guy in uh, in a NASCAR situation that they just went, you know what? Yeah, let's do it. Man, I I enjoyed that. I enjoyed my time of uh, of NASCAR uh, of doing NASCAR because it really, I mean, it was way out of my comfort zone. That's for sure. But it is but on the track. Also, <laughs> yes, it is on the track, <laughs> and it's loud and it's competitive. And the drivers have the same kind of, you know, jet fighter, sprinter, boxer mentality. So you would think that NASCAR is a completely different world. But I found a lot of similarities between, uh, you know, my world and that world. All right. Before we get into coaching, uh, what's the best part of being a broadcast analyst and the worst part? The best part of being a broadcast analyst is you get the best seat in the house for all the events in sports and in track and field that you know i would want to be at anyway except i can still drink a beer <laughs> and i don't have to do 300 and uh and, and lift a bunch of weights and and make myself sick every day um that's the best part the worst part is i think that in doing your job you're gonna lose some friends and mm-hmm. i i say that i say that because from from the very first year there are people who they, you know, athletes can be very set. I wasn't that that athlete that you know that that found bulletin board material and everything that everybody said, or you know, I remember Craig Masback, who I work with now, mm-hmm. 
saying on, I believe he said it on air, but I, I, I don't remember if, if he actually said it on the air, but I know he said it. He said, the difference between Otto Bolden and Maurice Green is that Otto Bolden tries to think his way through the 100, and Maurice Green feels his way through the 100. Hmm. And the athlete that's going to win is typically the one who is going to go on the feeling and not the thinking. You know, for another athlete, they, that, they would be offended. And I listened to it and I went, yeah, he's probably right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the worst, part, the worst part of it is that you are going to lose some friends or some acquaintances because you're going to be athletes who are otherwise friends with you or who you had relationships with who are suddenly going to stop talking to you because, you know, you said something one time or they felt slighted because of something that you um, you said or you, you know, in, during a race or whatever. And, uh, and, and that's okay. And that's okay. That's, that's, that sort of um, comes with the territory. All right. So you are a sprint coach. How did you get into coaching? I have no idea because I'd always said <laughs> my entire career I'd been told, yeah, you're probably going to make a pretty good coach after and I went, oh, no, I won't because I don't have the patience for it. I don't have the temperament for it. I probably still don't. But I had a young lady, Kalifa St. Ford, who was going to high school here and her father came and asked me to sort of assess her ability. And she was not in a good, uh, not in a good situation in her high school. And this I is Miami. Of, yeah, she uh, she went. She goes to St. Thomas Aquinas, which is a, a football powerhouse in South Florida, out in Fort Lauderdale. But their track and field team is very good too. But she was not doing well on that team, and her father was very frustrated and uh, asked me to just sort of assess if she was any good because he felt like she was good, but she wasn't improving, and he brought her to my, you know, to my track in, uh, in Miramar, Florida. And I took one look at her and I could not believe that, you know, what he was saying was, you know, I was, I asked him, I said, this is the young lady that's being ignored on her high school team. And he said, yep. I said, well, no, we can't have that. This girl has real ability. And I started coaching her and she went from 12 flat to 11, five the first year. And by the next year she ran 11 to one and was in the world championship. She actually got a bronze medal her junior year with the Trinidad and Tobago 4 by one Now, what sealed the deal for me is when I found out that her mother was from Trinidad, and I realized, oh, shoot, not only can I coach her, she can run for Trinidad. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> that's how I got into coaching. And at one point, my club was probably about nine, ten kids, all from around the area. They've all gone on to, to do big things. Um, one of them is in Alabama, another one with the University of Central Florida, all of them have sort of moved on and either continued in the sport or they're, you know, they're, they're living their, uh, their adult lives now. And I am now left with Brianna Williams, who was one of my earliest athletes and who went on to break the, uh, the high school record last year. And who's doing some great things as we speak. Yeah, Brianna. <laughs> it's, it's funny with Brianna because when I had Khalifa, People went, oh, so he got lucky because, you know, there's this girl who Khalifa just happens to, to live about seven or eight miles from me. And people went, oh, yeah, so it's not that he can coach. It's that he got lucky because this, this girl's father came and knocked on his door. Uh-huh. And I don't know, maybe even I believed it. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I don't have any formal coaching education. But when Brianna showed up about a year later, um, I said to anybody who would listen, I said, uh, Khalifa is very good. But I don't want to sound like Richard Williams here, uh, Venus and Serena's dad. But I know everybody's enamored with Venus, 
I got a Serena coming. Because <laughs> I remember when he said it originally. I remember when Richard Williams said that originally. I went, oh, yeah, right. You have two daughters that are going to be the best <laughs> in the world. Yeah, right. That'll happen. But that is the, I was right. Because Brianna has turned out to be exactly what I told people she would be. The season that Brianna had in the 100-meter dash last year was just nuts. 17 years old, high school senior. Only five people in the world ran faster in the 100. She broke the high school record and not only broke it, but she was so consistent. I think she had three or four times under 11.10 seconds, which there's only, there'd only been one high schooler in history under 11.1 wow. at any point. So she really had a good year and she, uh, you know, she makes her coach look good, but she's really a phenomenal athlete. What's your criteria for working with athletes? That's a very good question. I tend to now, because I have coached some some pros, and it didn't last very long. (laughs) Um, I think that I am probably better suited to coaching younger athletes because I can be pretty set in my ways, as you know. Uh And, uh, (laughs) And I think that when a pro comes to you, they are a lot more likely to say, you know what, I, I kind of want to do it this way because I've always done it this way. And my initial attitude to that is, eh, that's the wrong move because you wouldn't be here if you had been having success elsewhere. Right. When I get to, I, I think the reason why Brianna Williams, for example, is having the success that she's having is that Brianna has been around me since she was 10, 11 years old. Even though I've really only coached her for about the last five or six years, I have been able to kind of nurture and guide her even when she had other coaches. And she's sort of been able to come up in my system. So I think the criteria for me coaching somebody is I have to get them fairly early and I have to have almost complete control of what's going on. And, and that's, you know, people, you, people hear that control word and they think, oh, that's not a good thing. That's a bad thing. The truth is, if you look at what Brianna's been able to do, part of why she's been able to do it is because her mother came to me and said, I'm going to trust you that every move you make with this young child is going to be the move that's going to get her closer to her dreams. And her dreams are you know, involved being on an Olympic podium. And uh, I don't know if Brianna was necessarily going to be on an Olympic podium in Tokyo 2020. My powers of prognostication say that if you're fifth best or sixth best in the world, that you are certainly going to be in an Olympic final. But I know that that's because she and her mother trusted me to make the right moves based on my experience, mm-hmm. you know, through her entire career. What is your approach to coaching then? Because these are two high caliber athletes that you don't just luck out with. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, after Khalifa, people thought, well, he got lucky. And, and after Brianna, they said, well, okay, it, it, it clearly is not luck. My approach is, as I said, I'm not formally trained in, you know, to, to be a coach. All I was lucky enough to be coached by one of the very best in John Smith, um, who has guided the careers of everybody from, Carmelita Jetter to Maurice Green to Quincy Watts to Kevin Young, who still has the 400-meter hurdle record some 18 years later. Excuse me, some 28 years later. For me, I believe the champions are convinced. And I think that my gift as a coach 
is not necessarily the technical aspects, and I, I can't draw you flow charts about everything that's technical. But when you see Brianna in the Olympics, you're going to say, okay, that is somebody who has, is capable of competing at this level because she is convinced that she is worthy to be there. So mm -hmm. much of a young athlete, so much of what can hold a young athlete back is that they don't believe they belong. And my athletes don't suffer from that because I communicate to them constantly that they do belong and they are going to do well. And that's sort of why when they get there, they're not overwhelmed by, uh, by the moment. It's interesting to hear you say that. And, you know, I think, you know, having worked with you and listened to you, uh, you know, even when I wasn't working with you, I think you have this ability to coach the audience on what they're seeing and what went well and what didn't. So I think that your transition to coach may have come a little bit from the broadcasting side, too, because you're explaining, you're breaking things down. How do you think that you've been able to communicate that well with someone? It's funny that you should say that because very early on in my coaching career, I got a real sense that my coaching helps my broadcasting and my broadcasting helps my coaching. The coaching helps the broadcasting because having to teach somebody something for the very first time helps me explain it better when I get on the air. Mm -hmm. And when I'm on the air and, and having to constantly sort of Make sure that, as you said, the audience's eyes are focused on something or here's what to look for. I think that translates well when you're teaching a young person concepts and, 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 and motivating them in something that they are probably just a little short of being able to grasp yet. And I'll give you an example. When I showed up in Florida, I moved from California to Florida in 2008, and I showed up here. This was before I was coaching. And I said to myself, wow, I always thought that Texas and California had the talent. Florida has per capita maybe more talent, but I see a lot of talent wasting out here hmm. because, the, yeah, because the coaches are um, they're either incapable or afraid to really coach these kids. And I use the example with other American sports. You look at an athlete that's able to make the jump from high school to the NBA, and it's because their fundamentals are sound. I watched LeBron James play in high school, and I went, wow, never seen anything like it. I watched Allison Phoenix run in high school. I knew then. Mm -hmm. But I saw some of the kids out here, and the, the coaches were almost so enamored with the talent that they were afraid to coach them up. And I said, I said openly, I said, man, if I was coaching here, I'd, I'd, I'd kill everybody because it's not that I'm going to be the greatest coach. So I'm not going to be afraid to take young people and start teaching them concepts that maybe you don't think they're capable of handling. And I got, that was the, when I first started coaching both Khalifa and Brianna, that's what I heard. So, oh, you, you're trying to teach these kids how to do the dry phase. Well, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not old enough to get that. And I said, really? Because I, I see young athletes being told, being taught how to hit a baseball and there's a proper way to swing a bat. I see young, young basketball players being taught how to shoot. There's a correct way to shoot. Why would you think that somehow that would not be the same way that you would approach somebody who's learning how to sprint? Yeah. And I, if, if anything, I think that what my athletes have done in, in, in the high school ranks and gone on to do is sort of validation, uh, validation of that point. It's like, no, teach them it from a young age 
and they will figure it out eventually. Don't hold it back or deny them that because you feel like, oh, well, you know, that's maybe a little too much for a 12-year-old to handle or a 11-year-old to handle. So I, I really feel vindicated by by seeing some of, of what I was able to do on the high school level. Well, and you've been able to translate that with football players for the NFL Combine as well. How fundamentally unsound are football players? <laughs> as fundamentally unsound as you can get. <laughs> um, but, it, but, but, again, it, it, it goes back to what I just talked about. Of don't be afraid to teach somebody who has no idea what you're talking about introduce them to the concepts and trust that if they're gifted athletes, they'll figure it out. I remember my first time working with, uh, with Patrick Peterson, who plays for the Cardinals now. I mean, he was just wild in his career now. And, you know, he was a track guy, but he needed to learn to be taught how to run that 40. It's, when these guys are getting ready for their pro day or for the combine, they are getting ready to do something that's very specific, right? It's almost like the SAT. And if, and, and if you know what's coming, you can prepare for it so specifically that you get great results when you show up there because you're like, ah, I know exactly what this is because I've done it a hundred times. And yeah. that is, is kind of my concept with, with, with my young athletes. So, yeah, I, I never played football. When I got to Jamaica High School in Queens when I moved here, Jamaica High School didn't have a football team. Of course, now what we know about football, I say, wow, that probably was more blessing than curse. But... Because I never got to play any football, I've always had that, oh, you know, what if? And me, you know, me having, you know, all these NFL clients now um, and guys playing in the league, I think is my way of saying, yeah, I never got to play a down of football, but I certainly get to see, you know, a, a lot of guys who I've been able to work with play on Sunday. So it's, it's, it's a big thrill for me. Yeah. All right. I've got a couple more questions for you because I know you probably have to run. But uh, <laughs> when, when you're a coach, let, let's say you have an athlete that gets to a certain level where you, ha you have the ability to cover them while on air. How are you going to find that balance on covering somebody, somebody that you coach and having to perhaps be critical not only of the athlete but maybe of the coach themselves? <laughs> um, well, we're going to find that out very soon, aren't we? Because... Um... <laughs> Well, I had a little bit of it because I was working with Natasha Hastings, the American quarter miler, back in 2016. She has her coach in Texas, but she had come to me for some extra help on some of her mechanics and, and I, I think kind of her mind as well. Um, she had her best year in 2016. She made the Olympic team. She finished fourth in the final, which uh, that was her first Olympic individual final. It's her highest finish ever. And I remember in Rio... Not feeling like, oh, I have to, you know, do any kind of tiptoeing around how I, you know, how I critique or, or what I thought of, of, of her race. Here's the thing. If I'm your coach, chances are you will have heard so much critique and so much honest criticism that <laughs> it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be an issue. With Brianna, though, I think it's, it's different. And I had to cover her this year at the Milrose Games indoors. She was the only high schooler there. She's a, she's a, a high school senior. And she was leading the race for about 50 meters and then ended up in third. Again, I didn't feel like, oh, you know, lane one, lane two, lane three, oh, that's my athlete, lane four. Because when I, when I approach a race, wh whatever it is I have to say, I'm going to say it anyway. So I don't feel like I have any big adjustment to make. Now, 
if I'm calling the 100-meter final in Tokyo next year and she's in the race, I, I, don't, I don't know how we're going to tackle that at, at NBC. I know that there is precedent because I know that in the Winter Olympics, there are um, broadcasters who have choreographed almost half of the programs that you're seeing. Mm-hmm. And it's never, been, it's never really been an issue. So um, I don't see it as being a big thing. And you can, you can best believe that win, lose, or draw, my assessment of, uh, of Brianna's performance is going to be exactly what it would be whether or not she was my athlete. Because I, I can be very brutal with Brianna regardless. So it would just be what I normally say to Brianna. It'd just be for you know, an audience of several hundred million. The difference between being an athlete and being a coach when there's accomplishments, what's the feeling? What's the difference in the feeling? Oh, I think any coach would tell you, you, you feed it way, way more for your athlete. And, and you, were around, you were around when we replayed um, my reaction to yes. Brianna becoming the youngest world under 20 champion. Nobody that knows me has ever seen me behave like that because I am that's just not my that's just not some place that I go. But seeing her seeing her dream start to come true is uh, is one of the highlights of my life. I think when it's I think when it's your own accomplishments, yeah, you're I mean you're thrilled for yourself, obviously. But when you plant that seed and you watch that that plant grow and then it starts to flower and blossom. It is the greatest feeling in the world. And I think it's what, it's what draws people to coaching and it, it's what keeps people in coaching because it really is a feeling unlike uh, anything else. And for me, you know, I mean, come on, I've, I've done it. I've done so much and, and, and I've seen so much and you know, you get kind of jaded. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Been there, done that. Yeah. And then I think coach, I think coaching, opened me up to emotions and opened me up to, to feelings that I had never had because I'd never had so much on the line for someone other than myself. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an addictive feeling, I have to tell you. Yeah, well, and just seeing that video of you in the stands after Brianna won <laughs> twice was, was fun enough in itself. And then, you know, uh, we, we both work with Josh Cox, who is right. a marathoner and he he represents Des <laughs> Linden and in the 2018 mm-hmm. Boston Marathon she won and and he was at the finish right. line more emotional than her husband so That's I right. can understand that emotion Yeah and 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 Josh teased me about mine and I teased Josh <laughs> about his but we but there was a there was a, a a real mutual respect there because we know how hard it is because you deal with the ups and the downs and the highs and the lows and you you live with these you live through these athletes because you're going through whatever they're going through you are forced to go through as well yeah all right um transitioning real quick back to your broadcasting because you're not just an on-air analyst you're doing more feature type stuff and i i recently saw the um the interview with Dr. John Carlos, the one of the civil rights activists who protested in the 68 Olympic Games in Mexico. Mm-hmm. What did you learn from that interview or experience uh, in revisiting that 50 years later? Well, I have to give you a little bit of the backstory, and that is that I don't know who you had on your wall, <laughs> what posters you had on your wall when you were when you were in high school. I guess my friends would have had, I don't know, Janet Jackson or Michael Jackson or whatever. I had those guys on my wall. They went to San Jose State. 
I did my final year of, of high school in San Jose. I, I grew up spending my summers in San Jose. My uncle, that same uncle that I referenced before, taught those guys at San Jose State. So they were always very prominent in my upbringing. And I came to understand very early in my life what a big sacrifice those guys had made, how important that that gesture was, even if people didn't understand it at the time and they were ostracized at the time. Mm -hmm. So when I became an athlete and got a chance to meet those guys and they were doing that interview with, with Dr. John Carlos, I was sort of the only person they could have picked because it's like, oh yeah, let Otto do that because he knows John and he knows that story inside and out. Um, in terms of what I learned doing the interview that I didn't know, I was surprised to hear it's one thing that stuck with me. I, they aired it again the other day, and, and, and I watched it because my, my DVR set to tape everything track and field. When John Carlos says to me, yeah, 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 Otto, of course you don't understand me saying my only point, my only focus once I had made the Olympic final is let me just get on this podium so we can do whatever it is that we're, we're going to decide to do. The reason why that's hard for you to believe is because you grew up in an era where the Olympics were money and mm -hmm. fame and commercials and bonuses and contracts. For me, the Olympics was just another meet. And I went, oh my gosh, of course, in my own little bubble, I can't picture what the Olympics were in 68. Right. The Olympics in 68, you know, there, there was no contract. There was, he was, he was not going to do a single thing for his, for his bank book by winning that race or for even being in the race or going to the Olympics. And he drove that point, that point home so strongly for me that I just, even in the course of conducting that interview, I just went, Ugh, yeah, okay, okay, I get it. And if anybody hasn't seen it, it's called Bring the Fire, A Conversation with John Carlos, uh, and you can find it on NBC Sports uh, platforms. I thought you asked some really good questions and you had a, a really good rapport with, uh, with John Carlos. And it's really hard to get that with athletes. Uh, and you had a conversation about uh, something that was life-changing. Yeah. I think that um, they have a good philosophy at, at, at NBC and Jack Felling who produced that. Uh, and Jack Felling is, is, as you know, is just awesome at what he does. Um, most of the pretty stuff and, and, and the good and the great pieces that you see during, during, not just the Olympics, just anything big that we have on NBC is, you know, is, is produced by Jack Felling. And Jack Felling has a concept, and I agree with him. He says, athletes talk more freely with other athletes than anybody else. They could have used Tariko or anybody else to do that interview, but there's certain things that John Carlos is going to tell me and is a way that he's going to tell it that I think is different than he would that he would say to anybody else that's a non-athlete. And I've always heard Jack say that. And every time I see an athlete conduct an interview with another athlete and it comes off really well, I go, yep, that's, you know, Jack's always said, you put musicians to sit down and interview other musicians, the interview is going to be different. You put actors to sit down and talk to other actors, that interview is going to be different. And at NBC, I think that's something that we, um, that we believe and we've, we've gotten good results with. Well, definitely storytelling helps in the coverage of Olympics, So, and you're a big part of that. Absolutely. The final question I have for you before I let you go, what would you like sports fans to know about what you do that they might not otherwise know? <laughs> what would I like sports fans to know about what I do? I think that to the, to the casual fan, not everybody, but some people think, oh, well, so you used to do it. 
and they put you in the booth and they stick you in a suit and you know you just go up there and you you know talk truck i mean it can't be that hard and i think <laughs> that that's something that a lot of people do in with with many other jobs right you watch Denzel Washington do a movie, and a lot of people look at Denzel and they go, oh, I could do that. Yeah. Acting, I could do that. Until you realize that a professional makes the difficult look very, very easy. And I've seen a lot of people try out in this business who, as we said at the top, right, we're just having the conversation, and they're full of knowledge, and they have the personality and all of that, and that red light goes on. And yep. they change. And then they can't do it. And you go, whoa, what happened to five minutes ago? Yeah. So I think that there is, uh, in some circles, this thing of, yeah, broadcasting is the easiest thing in the world, right? You take somebody who used to do it for a living, and they and you stick them in a booth, and you put a microphone on them, and they, they just talk. And, you know, I mean, you know, we can see the pictures. The action sort of, you know, dictates where the camera's going to go anyway. And yeah, that's that's an easy job. I look. This is this is not rocket science by any by any means. But I think that people maybe underestimate how challenging a job it is to call live sports. And I think this job has challenged me way more than sprinting ever has. Coaching and broadcasting are way harder than sprinting. Otto Bolden. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for the after-show conversations that we would get into. Um, and thank you for being on this podcast. I appreciate learning about you and, and your perspective on this industry. And, and I hope my listeners uh, appreciate more what goes into uh, making sports from your perspective. It's certainly been a real pleasure to be on here with you, Don. A lot of fun. I appreciate it. Thanks, Otto. Thank you. That was Otto Bolden, sprint coach, track and field analyst, and four-time Olympic medalist. One of the things I treasured when I worked with professionals was that they were entertaining and I also learned something from. With Otto, he has the skill to be able to talk as an expert on track and field and still has the ability to help the casual viewer understand what to look for. And he's got strong opinions that he's not afraid to talk about. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I enjoyed talking with him and, and many of my other colleagues after the show productions uh, to talk more in depth and just get a little personality out of them. And, and this episode is reflective of some of the things that we would discuss. If you'd like to find out more about Otto Bolden, visit NBCSportsGroupPressBox.com or just do an internet search and you'll find all kinds of cool things about him and his track and field career and, and all that stuff. On the next episode of the Sports in the Making podcast, eSports is positioned well during this global pandemic and has helped sports networks fill the programming void for sports content. My upcoming guests Chris Dahl and Patrick Barth of Atomic break down what goes into producing eSports events for television and what the future is for these growing events. It'll be a very interesting conversation for those in the eSports world. If you have any suggestions on what you'd like to know more about in sports, drop me a line at sportsinthemaking.com or contact me on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you have any questions, I'd love to include them in a future episode with your name. Wherever you listen to this podcast, I'd appreciate it if you like it, share it, and leave positive reviews on your social media channels. Also, be sure to subscribe to Sports in the Making so you don't miss out on more episodes and you can catch up on previous ones there as well. I'm your host, Don Cardona. Thank you for listening to Sports in the Making. Thank <laughs> you.